views expressed in the Heritage Science Podcast are the opinions of individuals and do not represent CIHA or any of its partner institutions. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Heritage Science Podcast, the show brought to you by students of CIHA, the Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology. I'm Hayley Simon and today we'll be discussing how innovative technologies are being used in research by one of the UK's largest heritage organisations, Historic England. To tell us more, Steve Trow, their Director of Research, has joined me today. Welcome. Hi. So Steve, you began as an archaeologist. Was it a natural progression into Historic England? Yes, yes. I started as an archaeologist. I trained at the Institute of Archaeology before it was part of UCL. And then I became a field archaeologist for a few years, working for the Museum of London. And then I worked for the British Museum for several years, working on post-excavation projects. And then I joined what was then English Heritage, because it was English Heritage in those days, not Historic England, in 1987. And I worked in the designation department, scheduling ancient monuments. And later on, I moved to do casework as an inspector of ancient monuments. So I dealt with planning applications, schedule monument consent. And then I moved to the policy team, where I was responsible for rural and environmental policy for about 10 years before becoming director of research. So when you were doing field archaeology, was it uh, buildings as well? Yeah, I specialised in the, the Roman period. I was particularly interested in the transition from the late Iron Age to the Roman period. So I did some excavations in Gloucestershire, yeah. and I was particularly interested in the west of England. And then when I worked for the Museum of London, I was just a, a, an urban archaeologist down a deep, dirty hole. <laughs> There's worse things to be, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> so just for our listeners to get a bit of an idea, what exactly is the role of Historic England? We used to be called English Heritage, but in 2015, we created a charity that now runs the 400 historic properties, and that kept the name English Heritage, and we adopted the name Historic England. So we're uh, an arm's length body of the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. We are uh, its statutory advisor on the historic environment, and we designate things, we list and schedule historic assets. We offer planning advice to local authorities. We offer advice to government on the management of the historic environment. We do outreach and education, and not least, we do research. So it's quite intertwined with the British government then? In essence, we offer advice on the historic environment in England to the DCMS, and we've got counterparts in Wales, Cadw, Historic mm-hmm. Environment Scotland, and so do on. Do you have much overlap with the Scottish and the other home uh, countries? We, we talk to them um, all the time. I was in Edinburgh only last week, meeting with my counterparts who deal with some archaeological issues there. So yes, yes, yes we do. And so what kind of research areas are Historic England currently involved in? So I suppose the first thing to say is the research that we do is what you might call applied research. We don't do blue skies research particularly. And by that, I mean, we do research that supports our other statutory functions so that we can designate and manage the historic environment appropriately. We also do work, if you like, that's aimed at public outreach and understanding as well. And we do all sorts of things from archaeology, archaeological science. We have uh, integrated teams of archaeologists and architectural historians who are basically all about understanding historic places and the way they've evolved and the way they've come to be the way they are today. We've got people who do research on historic buildings, including sophisticated 
technological conservation, the energy efficiency of historic buildings and so on. And we've got people who do social and economic research, so understanding the value of the heritage to UK PLC. That's something very difficult to quantify. <laughs> it is. It keeps them very busy. <laughs> <laughs> you just leave it to them, just like... Absolutely. Yeah, so there's, there's a wide range, you know, through through the sciences, through the humanities, uh, right across the board, really. Sounds quite similar to see here in that we do a lot of different areas. You, you have some people researching, you know, how efficient houses are and other people doing more conservation-based and then others on how people approach heritage in museum environments so yeah. it's it's yeah. very much similar to what it's, a, it's a very wide range it makes it really difficult to sum up in a in a soundbite <laughs> sorry for that <laughs> in terms of the scientific aspect of historic england's research what kind of scientific methods are you using okay so i guess we've got about a hundred active researchers in total and i think about just over 30 of those would classify themselves as scientists they are involved in archaeological science, so scientific dating, scientific conservation, material sciences, prospection and imaging technologies. And we've also got people who deal with the built environment, particularly around the detail of approaches to technical conservation and the sort of thing I was mentioning earlier. So understanding both the energy and the thermal performance of historic buildings and looking at how they can be adapted to become more energy efficient um, without destroying their historic character. So those tend to be the sort of particular scientific areas that we've particular expertise in, I suppose. Have you seen a change from when you were out there in the field to, you know, what is done now in practice? Absolutely, although um, people won't be able to see quite how old I am, but I'm quite, (laughs) quite old. And I, for example, when I was a student... I conducted uh, a geophysical survey on an area of land in the Cotswolds in the winter wearing football shorts because you had to have nothing metallic on and it took us a week and now my team of geophysical scientists tell me they could do the same area in about five minutes. So it really is astonishing I think the way that both the technologies improved and then the data processing power behind that technology has absolutely revolutionised things. And that's quite a common strand behind quite a lot of, of what we do because we're very interested in how we get smarter at delivering survey and other technologies. So geophysics is one example. We have a team that do uh, laser scanning and they've just invested in this amazing kit which colloquially we call the Ghostbusters pack. But in essence, it's a backpack full of laser scanners and you can scan a building as quickly as you can walk around it now. When I was a student, that would have taken months of detailed survey to get the same level of uh, result. Yeah, this is a theme that kind of keeps coming up in the podcast we do, where we talk to people from all different areas of the heritage field. There seems to be more and more data coming about, and we can now acquire things very quickly. But as you say, the processing is far more difficult. What kind of approaches have Historic England taken to store and manage all the reams of data that is produced? We manage, just, <laughs> but it is, it's a real issue in terms of capacity. So my group within Historic England, the research group, is a particularly um, favourite group when I'm dealing with my IT colleagues because we're described as high-end users <laughs> compared with the rest of historic England. So, yeah, it's a real challenge. But the other side of it is that by getting so quick at collecting data, we're also becoming far more cost-effective. So projects that would have been extremely l- lengthy and costly a decade or so ago 
are now really quick and comparatively cheap to deliver. So the processing costs, I guess, are not so worrying. Have you tried out any of these Ghostbuster backpacks or anything? promised to let me have a go next time I'm in York. Some (laughs) of my colleagues are based in York. (laughs) Brilliant. So in terms of national perspective, how do the research interests of historic England differ compared to other uh, national institutions? I suppose the other significant institutions are the major national museums, like the British Museum, which are obviously very collections-focused. Or the other big organisations are organisations like the National Trust or the English Heritage Trust, which now manages the 400 state historic properties on our behalf. And I guess the difference for Historic England is we're interested in the entire historic environment. So not just the special places behind the fence, as it were, but absolutely everywhere. So we've got an interest in everyone's neighbourhood and its historic character. Does that also include historic weather and historic climate? We do quite a lot of work, as you can imagine, thinking about climate change. We do some of that at the more sort of theoretical level, the more strategic level. But we've also been involved in quite a lot of work trying to deal with the practical implications of climate change. So over the last 10 years or so, we've particularly focused on coastal erosion and um, the implications of sea level rise because they are some of the most clearly defined and predictable impacts of climate change. You sort of know where they're going to happen and what's happening. So we funded a a large amount of coastal survey to begin to get a grasp of the scale of the problem, if you like, and an understanding of what's likely to be vulnerable and when. And then, to some extent, our involvement in that area, we've drawn a line under that, but we were really delighted that the Heritage Lottery Fund is now funding volunteer organisations such as Citizen. I can can never do the acronym, I'm afraid, but they're a a volunteer group who are recording coastal archaeology ahead of its erosion. And they've based their work on all of the strategic work that we did on coastal recording. I mean, it's incredible some of the things you find at the coast, like the big thing in the media and in public archaeology at the moment is the stuff in Cambridge on the coast there, Britain's Pompeii, as they like to call it. Has Historic England had any involvement? I think you're talking about Must Farm. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yeah. In the Fens, just outside Peterborough, so the Pompeii of Peterborough is the press (laughs) of like to call it. Yeah, that's a case that we've been putting a lot of grant aid into. So we've been funding the Cambridge Archaeological Unit to excavate the site, which is the most astounding late Bronze Age settlement, uh, which appears to have been a series of uh, roundhouses raised on stilts over a river, comparatively near to an estuary. And it has revealed the most amazing things because it's been preserved in anoxic conditions, it's waterlogged, so there's no oxygen affecting the remains. And it's been a very science-rich project as well. So initially, when it was first discovered, we thought about trying to leave it in situ to see whether it could be protected in the ground. We did a lot of scientific monitoring and came to the conclusion that it wasn't going to be possible, so that led to the excavation. The excavations involved three-dimensional recording using photogrammetry, It's clearly involving a lot of scientific dating technology that we've had to throw at it. It's going to pose some interesting challenges in terms of the conservation of a lot of the timber because it's produced the most amazing selection of timber artefacts plus really, really well-preserved Bronze Age timber roundhouses which essentially have just collapsed in a sort of flat-pack way. 
in a way that nobody's ever seen before, either in the UK or anywhere in Western Europe, in fact. So we've got this amazing site, and we've completed funding the excavation. We're now going to move into the post-excavation phase, and again, there's going to be a lot of scientific methods necessary to begin to explore what the site's actually telling us. The dating's been absolutely critical. So we know, for example, although the site was occupied 3,000 years ago, it was probably only occupied for less than eight months. Um, wow. So it's a real time capsule, and that's one of the things that's really interesting about it. They're some of the most interesting cases. I mean, in archaeology, you get this divide between different sites. You have sites that have long periods of occupation and can tell you about a broad time scale, and then you get these other little snapshots, which there's areas for both of them within archaeological research. Absolutely. The other really interesting scientific challenge around Must Farm is whether the site is unique and unusual or whether it's actually more typical of Bronze Age occupation in the Fens, but we've only found the first one of what might be many such sites. It was found in a brick pit, and it's the only big hole that anyone's ever dug in the Fens. So we've either been very lucky that that hole coincided with the most significant site in the Bronze Age Fenland, or there are more sites out there. But at the moment, our scientific prospection techniques find the Fenland a bit challenging because of the depth at which stuff is buried. So there's an area where we really want to see more scientific innovation so we can work out whether there are more must farms out there and whether we've found the only one. I think it'd be great if there were more. How amazing would that be, just must farms dotted over the landscape? It's an exciting <laughs> prospect, but it's cost us nearly a million pounds so far. So oh um, one's enough for the time being, but we really would like to know where there are more of them out there. And also, I guess you're now moving into the conservation and the post-excavation stage, and that's probably going to rack up even more funds in terms of wood conservation, because I work with the Mary Rose Trust. Oh, so yeah. we have quite an insight into <laughs> just the challenges of trying to conserve waterlogged wood. Yeah, in relation to Must Farm, we had to do a very sort of quick and dirty audit to work out whether there was sufficient capacity in the UK to actually deal with the timber mm. from Must Farm. And the answer was just about. Yeah. But clearly, if any more sites like that are found or anything else comes up while we're processing this material, it is going to be a real challenge. It might be interesting to see if some of the survey techniques with them, as we said, getting so good, instead of excavating it, just getting a really thorough survey and that might be enough to say having excavated one and having information about the others even though it's not complete information you might be able to learn quite a lot just from survey plus one excavation. Yeah I I think that's very true. The work we're doing with geophysics and other uh, colleagues in universities are doing with geophysical survey now the speed at which it can be done the areas over which it can be done and the quality of the results is simply astounding. So I've seen recently plans of whole Roman towns that allow you to develop quite a a good understanding of what's going on without necessarily large-scale excavation. And it gives you the option for sort of more targeted forensic, small-scale excavation Mm. to answer particular problem-focused questions. It's definitely a new approach to archaeology that is quite exciting, actually, to be able to have this far more targeted approach rather than let's just see how much we can get out of this one site. Absolutely. Yeah. Being based all across England, how many different sites and different facilities does Historic England have? Historic England's got 11 offices in total. So London and Swindon are our really big offices. Then we have an office in every what used to be government regions. So there's another eight offices 
across England. And then we've also got a research establishment called Fort Cumberland in Portsmouth, which is this fascinating Napoleonic fort. So it's a great place in its own right. And that's where uh, our labs and our archaeologists are based. Got some good radiography there, I understand. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting, exciting kit there, some of which I understand, a lot of which I don't. But they're scanning electron microscope, we've got an X-ray suite, got a, a freeze-dryer, which in the context of uh, our discussion about waterlogged wood mm-hmm. is very important at the moment. We've just been analysing and conserving the material from the wreck of the London, from the Thames Estuary, down at Fort Cumberland using the freeze-dryer. We've also got our geophysicists who are based there, and uh, we were talking about the speed with which they can do things. So they've now got these amazing multi-sensor arrays that they can tow behind a Land Rover at quite high speeds now. (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of really exciting kit. I've just got this image of a Land Rover going at 70 miles an hour with all this stuff just bumping on behind I saw them in the field at Stonehenge not so long ago. It's pretty well like that. (laughs) They leave quite a cloud of dust behind (laughs) them as they go. So speaking of places like Stonehenge that are, you know, places of big public interest, are the public ever involved in research with Historic England? Increasingly so, although I think we could do more. But we have been doing quite a lot of research with volunteer groups. So just to think of a, a... A couple of examples. We've had a project recently called the Early Fabric Project, which is essentially looking at standing buildings in a number of places, such as Ely and Beverly and Chipping Norton, to work out whether they're essentially medieval buildings buried within the fabric of what appear to be more recent buildings. And those projects have involved working with local groups and basically training them so that um, they can carry on the work when we are not around, and they can extend the work to other towns. So that's been a really good one. We're doing work at the moment on Cannock Chase, so a project called The Chase Through Time. That's a great name. Yeah, it's a fantastic name. (laughs) Names just get better and better for projects, don't they? And we're partnering Staffordshire County Council. The Heritage Lottery Fund are putting quite a lot of money into that. But again, it's a big volunteer-led project, and we're teaching volunteers how to do survey, including some of the high-tech techniques that we've just been discussing and recently they've been focusing on the First World War heritage of Cannock Chase because there were training camps there and practice trenches and things like that so that's been great. So that's one way we're involving the public which is sort of directly as volunteers and I think we're also beginning to experiment more with public sourced research or crowdsourced research. So a good example of that recently is our Pride of Place project where we've been looking at the heritage of the gay community and asking them to tell us about what matters to them about buildings. And it's based around an open source map where they can access it and they can pin to it examples of their local heritage. And that's been an absolutely fascinating project for us and quite a groundbreaking one. Were there any surprises? There were quite a lot of surprises (laughs) in terms of what people thought was significant and important to them. And very often those buildings were not listed buildings. They're buildings that in architectural terms are not considered Mm. to be particularly significant, but in terms of that community have very great significance. Like clubs and stuff, I can imagine. Clubs and pubs particularly, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting, fascinating. I have to look it up. Yeah, yeah, do so. Pride of Place. Is there a place we could just Google it? Yeah, just Google (laughs) Pride of Place, you'll find it. Do you have a particularly favourite project that you've been involved with? We've talked about Must Farm, which is... I think probably my most favourite project that we've grant-aided, and I should have said at the beginning, really, that we both do work in-house, 
ourselves using our own expert staff, but we also grant aid other organisations to carry out work. So in that case, the Cambridge Archaeological Unit. I think that's my favourite because although I've been an archaeologist for a long time, that's probably the most stunning archaeological site for at least a generation. So that was fantastic. But there are other projects that we've done that I'm equally fond of, simply because they're making such a difference. So another good archaeological example is the work that our scientific dating colleagues have been carrying out. So they did a project called Gathering Time a couple of years ago, in which they looked at a type of Neolithic site called causewayed enclosures. So these are sites that are five to 6,000 years old. We've never been able to date them very precisely in the past. So we only had a fix on them down to a couple of centuries through this amazing combination of Bayesian mathematics and radiocarbon dating. And please don't ask me to, <laughs> to explain beyond that. They've been able to refine the dating of these sites and they were able to show that in southern England, instead of a bit happening over a period of several centuries, they appear to have appeared within 50 years of one another perhaps, and then they only appear to have been occupied for a very short time. So it's completely revolutionised how we understand that period and that type of site. And it's also meant that a period where you could only talk in centuries previously has now been reduced to something that feels like a generational experience. So you feel like you're being able to get hold of people's actual lifespans rather than just talking in abstract about periods, as it were. So that, that's been great. That's really exciting. It's quite interesting how people often think about radiocarbon dating. It's something that's been around since, you know, the 1960s. It's a well-established technique, but yet still research is going on to refine it and it's constantly being updated and improved. Absolutely. And, and Bayesian mathematics is a couple of hundred years old too. And that's just <laughs> come together with radiocarbon dating to create this revolution. Something that's often done in UCO archaeology is they use the radiocarbon dates on a large area. And in particular, England's very good because we've got a large number of well-dated material that you can use for this and you can use it to simulate population dynamics and things and that's a really big area that seems to be quite a buzz in archaeology at the moment. Right, yeah. Another project that I saw a presentation on the other day was one that's taking place here at UCL in the Bartlett, uh, which is called Colouring London. And again, that's beginning to understand the character of London by using computer technology And one of the interesting possibilities with that project is that it will allow sort of greater engagement with the community so that communities can begin to tell us what they value about different buildings in London and different areas of London. And we can begin to think about character uh, as well as just individual buildings. So again, you know, that's a really exciting project that just wouldn't have been possible without the processing power and the data sets that are now available. Definitely. Well, I mean, if you look in places, particularly in East London, there are areas that were initially the Huguenots and the French, and then they moved into the hands of the Jewish, and then Muslim communities came in. And it's just fascinating how in the same buildings, it could have once been a church and then a synagogue and then now a mosque. It's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. One of the things we're really interested in is trying to understand the character of historic places because obviously we list things and that's really important and it's a fundamental part of the tool in protecting the historic environment but equally people live in neighborhoods they don't live in just in listed buildings so it's trying to help communities find ways of expressing what they find really important about their heritage whether they live in a listed building or they just live in an unlisted building so character is a really 
interesting, quite an elusive concept, but it's one that all these new computer technologies and existing data sets, bringing those data sets together be, is beginning to allow us to express character in a much more sort of pointed way. So where do you see the future direction for Historic England? Clearly, as a public agency, we are always under pressure to become more efficient. Government keeps reducing our grant, which makes us have to think more and more about what we do and why we're doing it and what we have to focus on in particular. But I think there's a number of things in relation to research. So we are what the government calls a public sector research establishment. And the principal focuses for a public sector research establishment are to deliver research that supports policy. So we're very focused on that. To deliver research that promotes new methodologies. So that's obviously some of the things we've been discussing today. And also to try and build bridges between academia and the commercial sector. So we act as a sort of go-between between those. And I think that's something we're increasingly focusing on. We're trying to build better bridges with universities and the research councils. Yesterday we got some fantastic news that we've become an independent research organisation of the research councils. Which Congratulations. Is, thank you very much. We're really excited about that. And that opens up all sorts of possibilities for us as well. So just I want to quickly clarify for anyone who doesn't know when you have a research council universities can apply for money and funding and also museums and other heritage institutions that have this recognition they can also apply for funding so it's putting them on the same level as universities basically. That's very good yeah absolutely and it means we're eligible to apply to all seven research councils which is really interesting. We can think of projects for at least four already. I'm, I'm trying to think whether you could the Economics Research Council, what you could do Oh yeah, that. I think the things we want to explore with them are the economic value of the heritage, ah. so UK PLC, and also the, the social value of the heritage to UK PLC as well. So don't worry, we'll, um, we'll think of something. <laughs> <laughs> I can see a lot of applications and proposals being received from Historic <laughs> England in the next few years. Yeah. That'd be really interesting. Do you have one on your mind that you really want to... Yeah, but I can't tell you in case UCL pinched the idea and used it instead. <laughs> That's, fair <so>. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Thank you very much. It was really interesting to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Heritage Science Podcast is brought to you by the EPSRC Centre for Doctoral Training in Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology, produced in collaboration with the University College London's Digital Media Department. If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, contact us via Twitter at SeeHerCDT, that's S-E-A-H-A-C-D-T, or using the hashtag HSPodcast. Alternatively, please email us using the address seeher-manager at ucl.ac.uk or through the website www.seeher-cdt.ac.uk.